Off the ball. He's an absolute rascal. He sits there with a hand grenade, and every time there's a, there's a lull in the conversation, <laughs> he just gets one out and lobs it in. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts, and download the OTB Sports app. Off the ball daily. All right, we've got a very, very special treat for you now. I've spent the last week or so, I want to say, reading a, a new book from Ronnie O'Sullivan. Unbreakable, it's called. And uh, I have to tell you, I, I was very sad when it finished. There's a lot of good stories in there. I've read uh, all of Ronnie's books. And who better to talk about the book with than Ronnie O'Sullivan himself? Ronnie, I think it's your first time in studio with us. It is, yeah. Not the first time that we've sat down and spoke, but nope. the first time in your studio, which I've seen you before and thought, I wonder where that is. And now I get to see it. So fantastic little place you got here yeah you're very welcome you're very welcome mm. people will have seen a lot of off the ball fans will have seen our previous chats I think one of them was in the the dressing room at the Crucible in 2018 and then the following one was a year later in Ireland with myself and yourself and Jimmy Jimmy, right, Jimmy yeah. White it was great fun um, mm. some serious stories saw you at the Crucible stage door a couple of weeks ago as well yeah, quick, yeah. Fi- quick fist bump as you were leaving the, the, the match right. against Luca Brissell <laughs> it was insane because I, I was at the um, your second session I think it was against yeah. Fafai when you won 7-0 yeah. in that mini session I was just like this is there's a buzz. There's a buzz when you're playing in the Crucible, yeah. com- and it's incomparable to any other player. But yeah. you're used to it at this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, of course, yeah. Listen, I, even even that tournament there, you know, I, I, you know, I finished off terribly. I was really disappointed with how I played, and you know, not losing. Losing is just part and parcel of the game. But when you play well at the Crucible, no feeling like it. Such an intimate sort of place, and yeah. So I, lo- I love that place. You know, I love and I don't love it. If that makes sense. <laughs> A bit of both. Yeah, we were we were uh, discussing outside your uh, your love of running, and mm. we were talking a bit of football. I'm mm. playing a bit of football myself, to to a small degree. Mm. But like running for you is just such a cathartic thing. I was thinking about writing the book and the process mm. of writing the book, but also y- your talks about you know in the forests in in mm. England and going for the coffee with your mates afterwards, mm. and and mm. just the whole process. Mm. You really love it. I do, I do, I do. I mean, uh, I don't know what it is. It's just sort of it's, it's so opposite to, to snooker in a way because snooker is just indoors the culture of snooker is that you you know you eat fry, a lot of fried food you know you pints of coke you know the, the snooker player is not the most healthiest a bunch of people mm. so in some ways um, running has kind of kept me healthier um, it, and you know whereas in, in snooker it's you know it's, it's easy to let yourself go really so I've sort of found a way of sort of if I do the running and I do that then I'm you know, I'm balancing the books up really. You know, that's all I'm doing because obviously snooker is my job, it's what I do, and it's what I spend most of my time doing. But I think it really is a massive part of why I've been able to keep going and enjoy my snooker just because I found something else in my life which I really love and it gives me so much, which then allows me to kind of, um, you know, handle the stresses of playing and, you know, the, 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 the difficulties of snooker that it presents, you know. Would you get into coaching at all? Ro- athletics coaching, I mean. It, that that is something that I always think about. I think like when I finish playing, and you know, obviously got time hands. What would I like to do? And I think definitely being a running coach would be something I would really like to do. Yeah, Cause you, it could, I couldn't help but like feel the the happiness emanate from the pages when you really? talk in the book about going with Greg and Sonny, your two mates, yeah, yeah, yeah. going out for runs yeah. and just the, the crack you can have. And even the fun runs, like those are the the park runs on a yeah. Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're obviously huge in Ireland at the moment yeah. as well. Like my mum yeah. gets involved at Rossmore Park up in Monaghan mm. where we're from. Everyone across Ireland has their local park that they yeah. utilise. It's such an unbelievable thing and clearly it's something mm. that it, it brings people together as well. So it's a chance for you to unwind but it's also a chance to just 
keep yourself fed for snooker as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, putt runs are great because obviously at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, a lot of the races that I do when I run for my club it used to be like two o'clock in the afternoon. You can't eat your breakfast. You can't like waiting all day and you're stuck in traffic on Saturday. You get there, do the race, don't get home until six. So your whole day is taken up really, but that's for the real dedicated runners, mm-hmm. you know. But then you've got the park one. It's like, oh, let's round the corner, get up. You do your 5K, yeah. you're back home by half, half 10, still got your... So I think park runs have become such an unbelievable thing for me and for people's health. You know, I think doctors now recommend their patients before they put them on anti on Prozac or whatever mm. the tablets they say. Why don't you go and try the local park run? And people go and do it and they're like, they don't need the Prozac, you know. So it's it's kind of um, a br- brilliant thing to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive fan of the park runs. Um, you know, yeah, I love it. I, I think it's great. I think it's great. There was a, a great line in the book where you're, you're talking about um, Ayrton Senna and how yeah. the gra- he spoke often about the greatest days of his life were when he was go-karting yeah. as a kid. Yeah. yeah, Like, you paint a lovely picture of, of going to the, the snooker clubs in Ilford and, mm. and uh, the surrounding areas when you're a kid and going mm. in and probably smoke-filled rooms and yeah. money on the table yeah. and the fruit machines and the slots yeah. and that sort of thing. It sounded like a lovely childhood, you know, and, mm. and a, you, you clearly found a warmth in snooker clubs mm. that maybe attached you more to the sport. Yeah, yeah. I always say, you know... Um, Playing snooker as a junior, as an amateur in my snooker club days, they were like the best days of my, you know, my career. I loved it, you know, and you, you dream about turning pro and you turn pro and it's great, you know, but then it all becomes a bit, you know, like a travelling circus. You're here, there, everywhere. Obviously, the pressure of people watching, you know, your everything you do is kind of like scrutinised, I suppose. But as an amateur and a junior, you know, it's just get your cue out. Ronnie O'Sullivan's... Uh, whoever table four, 14 and you get your little bit of paper and you go over there and you put your bit of paper on the side and there might be three or four people watching your game and then you win and you take your bit of paper up to the guy oh, one three two and he breaks over 50 you had a 69 72 and 81 okay and that goes on the list and you're like and you sit around for an hour and a half and you wait for your name to be called out again and, and I, I always say i watched the queen's gambit and it was a little bit like when i was watching that and she was like you know she went up to get a, a you know, where am I playing? He was like, I'll give her a bit of paper. And it just reminded me of when I was playing in the junior competitions. And I and I loved them days more than any, winning any world championships, any UK championships. You can have all them. My amateur days and my junior days, all day long, best days of my life. It's amazing. Like, there was a line in the book where you said mm. snooker is like the best rug you've ever experienced. But you also said it's like different to, to golf and tennis and other sports where you know, a tennis player hits a, it's a bad shot and they mm. have the next shot to recover. Mm. You hit a bad shot in snooker and you have to sit there for yeah. for X amount of time and wait for your opponent to, yeah. to miss. So it's it's torturous mentally, I can imagine. Yeah, because it, it's it's sort of um, it's one of them sports that like like I also said in the book like there was a point when I remember I was playing in a tournament and I, I potted a long red and I and I cleared up and it was the first time in my life where I just thought if I get in here I'm going to clear the table and that's that's what happens you know when you get to the highest level like nowadays. Um, most of the top guys, you know, if they're on, they're just going to dominate the table all the time. So you don't really get a chance to put your mistakes right. You don't, yeah. you know, you have to sit there, wait. And it's tough, you know, a lot of, a lot of the top players that played the game, you know, you, you listen to some of the stuff they say. And, and a lot of them say, you know, the, the games you win are by when you're sitting in your chair. Like, how do I, how do I deal with the, the dialogue of like, you know, I've made a mistake, I'm sitting in my chair, you know, don't beat yourself up. You kind of like got to think, well, next time I get to the table, I'm ready to like, you know, score some points. And and a lot of players don't, you know, they, they you know, you can beat yourself up to, to a point that when you do come to the table, you're like, 
you, you make another mistake and then you know so and do that against someone like John Higgins Stephen Hendry Mark Selby Neil Robertson you know you're going to do a lot of sitting in your chair there, there was a, a I've often watched yourself at the Crucible and, and even you can see yourself in the TV camera before you come out and you're pacing the corridors unlike a lot of players you're looking at mm. the newspaper cuttings in the wall of the Crucible halls yeah. Um but that is clearly a ploy. Do you know, you, you don't want to get caught up in the in the little chit chats that happen between some players. Mm. Uh, you don't want to be spending your time, as you say, in the in the practice room. You know, mm. if, if you're practicing 15, 20 minutes before a match, yeah, it's a bit late. Yeah. Um. So, was that always your your process, your way of, of dealing with the, the pre match routine? I guess only fields and horses helps there as well. Would you not, stick something on the TV? Really, I just kind of got. I just remember just thinking, every time I go in the practice room. All I feel is stress and pressure, from, not for myself, but just from everybody, like the other players that are mm. in there. You can see they're pacing up and you can see they're nervous. You can see they're, they're like anxious to get on the practice table. And I'm on the practice table and I'm trying to like hit a few balls and I hate the thought of clock watching and playing. So I'd rather not be in that environment where there's a lot of, not just my stress, but their stress and we're all like, you know, <laughs> so I think I'm better off staying in my dressing room. I don't think 10, 15 minutes now is actually going to make much difference to how I'm going to play out there. So I, I, I started watching Alan Falls and Horses one year and I thought, I'm just going to enjoy the build-up rather than like put myself through that. Let's just watch a bit of that. Had a laugh, had a cup of tea. The knock on the door, 10 minutes. Right, put my bow tie Because normally I'm practising, rushing, putting my bow tie like you're out in two minutes. I thought, like, what's the point? You know, I'd rather just take my time, you know, and then we'll, we'll see what happens when we get out onto the, on the match table. It's, it's about taking control of the, of the situations. It's like the... It's like Steve Peters mm. and, and the psychology behind mm. everything. You know, mm. he, he, mm. like the, the chin paradox mm. and all those little things. Mm. Control what you can control. Mm. And it, it was even the same. I think there was a, was a part in the book where you're talking about, um, I think it was going to China for, for a tournament mm. and you're in the hotel on a Wednesday or a Thursday and, and there was a lot of people in the lobby obviously mm. waiting for mm. selfies, autographs or whatever. Mm. Mm. And I think you said something to them like, leave me alone essentially for today, tomorrow <laughs> and Friday and I'll sign everything for you on Saturday. Yeah. Which I thought was a great way of doing it because yeah. they respected that and you signed everything for people on the Saturday and you yeah. got your couple of days of relative yeah. peace. Yeah, yeah. So it is about controlling your yeah. controllables I guess, isn't it? Yeah, you have to because I, 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 I was going to China getting like bombarded with like everywhere you go like and in the end I was scared to come out of my room because I thought if I go downstairs I'm just going to spend like an hour, like 45 minutes just getting out of the hotel. So then, so then the next thought was, I just want to go home. And then I'll get beat and think, yeah, I'll go home. And I'll get home and I think, Why did, like, what's the point of going all that way? If you, and I realised it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. I just couldn't deal with the constant bombardment of pictures, yeah. autographs. So what I said was, right, next time I go, I will do pictures and autographs. Um, but like I said, it's, there's the, you know, it's like Monday, two, 12 o'clock to <laughs> 1 o'clock. I'll do an hour and we'll just get it out of done and then like give me three or four days rest and, and then we'll, we'll go again Friday and do some more signing and whatever so yeah like you say it's sometimes it's just about you know it's not you're not saying no but you're kind of like you know creating a framework where everybody kind of knows where they are let me get on my business let me do what I've got to do because I mean like the, the thing is you go to these places they want to see you win they want to see you get to the final they're, they're supporting you so I thought no one's actually benefiting from mm. this I'm getting beat early going home they're kind of like thinking oh I wish Ronnie was still in the tournament so I thought it's better for everybody if we just take control of the situation and kind of go look this and, and everyone was great with it you know so it worked out pretty good it's amazing the, uh, for people who have yet the book's only out yesterday I think so mm. people won't have uh, maybe got the chance to read it or pick it up just yet but there's there's a great uh, parts in the book where you're giving advice to people uh, yeah. you know every chapter has a different name whether it's uh, addiction or anxiety or uh, competition mm. or running or connecting mm. like they all lead into li little lessons at the end of the chapter yeah. that people can can nearly pick up yeah um, 
and and you speak very very frankly about that that I suppose period you talk about from ninety four to oh yeah. one or thereabouts where yeah. things were going downhill and yeah. there was a lot of addiction and and and. I guess dealing with things in your life mm. in in the only way you knew how at that point. Yeah. Um. W- was it difficult to open up about that that sort of stuff and, and your dad going away to prison and that sort of thing? Because obviously you were, you were a kid at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I. I yeah. I still. There's like there's certain things that could trigger me off about if I start talking about my dad and this and that. You know. Um. So I, yeah. I, and yeah, you, there is. But like I say, you know, them them times. I think like like you say with a book, it's sort of. You know, like they call it unbreakable, but it's quite weird, really, because all I've done is I've I've been broken a lot and put myself back together. I think that's what the book's about. It's about we're all human beings. Some people deal with stuff brilliantly, and you know they have a smoother path in life. Mine wasn't, and I took the wrong road, and I think I've paid the price for it. And I've kind of had to. I'm involved in a sport that requires you know powers of concentration, lots of stamina, lots of mental pressure, and I'm like this fragile person <laughs> trying to sort of succeed in that sort of... Well, you're not, you're, people aren't going to learn anything from the perf- perfect, quote nah, unquote, perfect person. Nah. So I think you need, yeah. you know, people aren't going to listen to someone without flaws. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what the book is. It's sort of like I've kind of had to sort of work out ways and and ways of navigate my way out of tough situations and into a better place. And, and sometimes there is, um, for me, there's like a... There's, I can foresee now where it's it could potentially go wrong and I'm much better at planning and pacing myself and kind of like getting the best out of myself rather than being brilliant for like two or three months I can be you know I can I can manage to pace a bit better and sort of stay on track a little bit longer and you know it's a bit like managing the tires on a formula one car mm. you know like someone can go off bursting around the track and be 10 seconds ahead and you think all oh, right but then actually the guy that's second is like patient managing tires but it doesn't have to do a pit stop the other geese has to do a pit stop he's on oh, and then it's like and then he's like 10 seconds behind the guy that's managed his tires better and i'm just like that snooker player that's managed to work out a way of how to just keep going without like being like full pelt but without kind of like dropping too far back either mm. and I just keep going and going and going and, and hopefully sometimes I hit top form and you nick a little bit of a win here and there and you know you're happy you know and it's it's more about longevity and staying on the track for as long as I can you know that reminded me of a funny a funny story from the last time myself and yourself spoke I think it was myself and yourself and Jimmy White you were talking about the, a driving lesson you once had where mm. <laughs> you were going fairly fast I think <laughs> like you're a pretty quick driver yourself so I think you were uh, terrifying the, the driving instructor watch that that interview back if you want to hear that that story yeah. but that those psychological things like I think it reminds me of two things that you've touched on in the book yeah. the dimmer switch like flicking the dimmer switch yeah. on your yeah. life yeah. but also the, the zoom out like yeah. almost looking at yourself from a, yeah. from a helicopter perspective yeah. And, yeah. 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 and how those things really can help you just relax. It's quite weird, really, the first time, because obviously that was a Steve Peters um, nugget, which was the helicopter, and I was like reading it in his book, and then I asked him, and he was like, you know, it's just about being, can you imagine being above looking at your life? And I was in the World Championships in 2012, and I was like, I was like, so in it, and I was like, oh, you know, I was like, and I just kind of just visioned myself being in this helicopter and looking above, and like, all I could see was the Crucible, Sheffield, the whole world going on, and... I thought, oh, ain't it great? Like, I'm here playing, you know, like a whole world. You know what I mean? I was like, this is not. Outer so, body experience. What's so terrifying about this? So I was able to sort of get myself out of it just through like using that sort of metaphor or whatever you want to call it. 
and I was just able to just get a, like a grip of like how unimportant snooker really was. Mm. Was at the moment I'm sitting there in the chair, I'm thinking, oh mate, this is like so scary. And then all of a sudden, it sort of like become like, oh, we're just playing in my front room here. This, you know what I mean? Really, that's all yeah, it is: yeah. sticks and balls on the snooker table. 900 people watching, like, try and enjoy it, you know, because there's so much more serious stuff going on out there than, than this. So, you know, there's little things like that. And like you say, the dimmer switch. Another friend of mine, Kevin, was like, you know, we don't have to totally turn that off, turn that on. To, you know, it's like we can we can play about with it. And I thought, you know what, that's actually quite a good way of putting it. And I've tried to sort of, well, I have done my life like that, but it was just a good metaphor of, like, you know, how people can just kind of, like, just be turn the intensity up and down as in of, of when you know and mm. just learning how to peak and pace yourself and you know you don't always have to be brilliant all the time you know sometimes average is okay because you know look at a marathon runner they're you know they're, they're, they're not they don't care you know four months before the race it's they're not hitting their times but come two three weeks before the race yeah. that's when they want to be in peak condition and it's a little bit like a snooker play you know you want to like pace yourself to be playing right at a certain time so you know you, you have to learn what what works for you when, when when am i at my best so they're the sort of things that you kind of learn along the way you know it's funny that you, that you talk about having that attitude in, in 2012 because like mm. i think back to, of all the seven world titles that you have mm. 2012 is probably the most impressive they're all impressive obviously mm -hmm. but 2012 in terms mm. of pure snooker yeah and then uh, people always ask me which which was your favorite mm. uh, like 2013 after a year mm. out is pretty damn impressive too mm, do you know mm, but mm. was 2012 the most satisfying for you maybe? I think so yeah I, I think like I felt I felt like I played my best mm. I felt like I was hitting the ball as well as I ever could probably you know 17 days at the crucible you know you're, you're you know you can start it's hard to like play great from start to finish but I felt in that tournament I did yeah. you know I might have had a little dip against Robertson in one session but other than that I think every session I played I felt like I played really well and so for me that was probably the most satisfying um of them all i think obviously 2013 was quite unbelievable really um you're working on a farm for a lot of that for some yeah of that for about six seven weeks yeah i managed to like, i was so bored i thought i've got to find something to do like, but i don't want a job so i said i'll do a bit of voluntary <laughs> and that's what i done um so yeah you know that was that was pretty good as well so yeah no there's been some quite unique experiences if you like but yeah certainly 2012 was a great year for me and you got to beat Ali Carter as well which, which yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I can only feel nice sometimes I know, I know. Ali Carter's like the bad guy sometimes in some of these, <laughs> these matches uh, but even that it's funny that first world title in, in 01 mm. like you were 25 by that point and everyone was probably thinking mm. this guy like this guy's unbelievable mm. when is he going to win a world title mm. Uh, and I know you'd spoken about how Steve Davis and mm. Stephen Henry mm. stopped winning at 32 mm. so in your mind you're thinking I only have seven years left mm. here to, mm. to win trophies but mm. And even in that that one, that last session against John mm. Higgins, mm. not an easy player to beat, but I think there was a missed ball at one point. Yeah. Higgins got in, yeah. br brings it back to 17 14. Yeah. You're probably thinking, yeah. oh, here we go. Yeah, absolutely. I remember it, red in the middle, and I've watched it back a few times, and I was like, how the, how the hell have I missed that red? And then he's come back potting, and I thought, you know what, that could have so easily gone the other way. Because he's the type of player that once he gets on a roll, you know, you, you're just like that sitting in your chair as a passenger, and, you know, you, you don't actually have to do anything wrong against him. That's the. That's the bad thing about it you know is that he's that good that he can you know do that to you so 
yeah that was a, a pretty scary moment um but yeah yeah i was at a bit of a late starter you know i think higgins was 22 williams was 24 when they won theirs i was 25 and then you sort of think well i've just got another seven eight years of this and, and then after so really it was quite weird because at 35 when i met steve peters i thought my career was over but actually they've been the best 10 years or 12 years of my of my of my career you know and that was just because he helped me kind of not be so hard on myself and allow me to just you know just try and get a grip of grip of myself a little bit you know we've, we've spoken before uh, about the that five minutes i think it's down as five minutes and eight seconds maybe yeah. now that that maximum break in mm. in uh, 97 uh the fastest which will never be broken in my opinion mm. um i think you, you in fact described it to me in an australian accent when we were sitting down in the in the cruise oh, really? for a few years which is brilliant <laughs> but um the, the one I, I actually that day i met you a couple of weeks ago at the in at the stage door walking into the crucible i was going in to interview jan verhas okay and we were we sat down and we spoke about the the maximum in the was at the world open in 2010 against mark mm. king mm. where you've basically after the first black first yeah. red first black mm. what's the prize for a maxi yeah. and like people were like this is this is the cockiest but most brilliant thing <laughs> I had ever I'd ever seen and, and Jan Verhaas I think the way he described it to me was he, he knew what you were probably going to do and leave the black maybe at the end and mm. of course he nudges you and says maybe do it for your fans yeah, yeah. he does get down and smack the, the final black in after leaving it there for, for a couple of moments what are your memories of that like that's that was an unbelievably um, yeah you're funny, in control yeah. of it like that's a laugh yeah I just found it quite hilarious you know what I mean sometimes you've got to do things that sort of like you know you sort of think well, what do I, I need you know what I mean I, I fancied the 147 and I knew the brake prize had been tampered with and I just thought oh yeah this would is, this is, this is be a bit of a lie I mean, just you're making a point basically yeah making a point yeah and um, yeah that was quite funny it was quite funny uh, and I, I quite yeah I, yeah it was funny yeah. Do you have a favourite, Maxi? Um, my favourite one was against uh, Ding Junhui in the final of the Welsh Open. Uh, it was the final frame, so I was 8-3 up, first to nine. And I played so well in that match, and I played so well in the tournament before, and that's probably the best, one of the best periods of where I played faultless snooker for about a month, where I'd, I felt like I just didn't miss. Um, and then to finish it off with a one four seven against Ding, and obviously the last red down the cushion was with the left hand. I didn't expect to pot it. I actually played a bad shot on the last black to get to the red. I was nowhere where I, where I wanted to be. I thought, I'm not going to be able to pot this for the rest because I'm not the best rest player anyway. Um, I'm all right. Um, so I just thought, oh, left hand is my best shot here, you know, because I've got to try and get the white down Remember here. the shot, yeah. And then, I, and then I hit it and it went straight in the middle. And I was like, oh. And then and I looked at the white and I thought, Hold on a minute, here, that, that's going. It just went between the pink and the. Like, I didn't play. Is that, that. one Willie Thorne was on commentary? I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, and I didn't know. I, did, I had an idea the white was going down towards the black, but I didn't play it to come between the pink <laughs> and the black. It's perfect. And the white landed, and I looked at it. And I thought, "Wow, that was that was hilarious." You know what I mean? <laughs> then the pressure was on. Like up until then, there was no pressure really. Yeah. Because I thought I'm not going to make the maxi because I see the red was there, and I thought if I get four in reds, four in blacks, sweet. And as soon as that red went, in, I was like. Oh dear! All right, like if I miss from here, yeah. then that will be a complete nightmare. And I remember hitting the yellow so bad, and I've had to use the the pot the green with the rest. And I was thinking, like, how am I here? Like, like what have I done? And then I potted it, and then the brown, and then, and then all of a sudden I potted the pink. weren't easy, but I was playing so well at the time. I just thought I can't, I ain't missing this. And then I got the black, and I thought a little left hander oh. because obviously the left hand. No, I don't think people know, but if it wasn't for the left hand, I probably would have gone. I don't know if I'd have carried on playing because that was the only like whenever I used to play left-handed, 
I used to feel like I felt like a proper snooker player again. I felt like my arm feels good, my bridge air, and I thought I wasn't as good, but I felt confident. I thought like I didn't have to think. Yeah. Like my mind would switch off, and I could just think, oh, like I, could, like I got a real true hit on the ball, and that's what like allowed me to keep playing, you know. And um, it was never the answer, but it was just like a bit of um, it gave me a bit of respite, you know. It was I felt like I for for. for, for Whenever I put the cue in my left hand, I felt like I could play without thinking. Mm. And to put that final black with a one four seven, I thought you've been so good to me. Now you can have your like, you know, you are going to put the final ball. You know, it was unmissable. If it had been a bit missable, maybe I wouldn't have done. But you know, it was just, yeah, I remember that that one four seven. That was my favourite one. Just don't let Elaine Robbie do see you heading up the left hand. Oh yeah, poor Elaine. <laughs> yeah, never forgive me that guy. No, poor Elaine. I, I was. Re- it was funny. A couple of years ago, I was doing a piece on News Talk. Uh, our Friend, uh, colleague station here in, in the building, and um, they were asking me, to, you know, can you review the best sports books you've read this year? Yeah. One of the five I picked was Tommy Caldwell, Don Wall. Um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The documentary had, had been done about right, you know yeah. his climbing and El yeah. Capitan and Yosemite yeah, National Park, yeah, yeah. and you read about it in the book. Age twenty two, he loses yeah. his index finger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but climbing is everything to him, so yeah. he overcomes it. Yeah, yeah. it's all he knows. Yeah, it, it's it's similar. Y- to your snooker story and that you, you take setbacks but yeah. you'll always overcome them because yeah. it's the sport you love so you have to yeah. you've no choice yeah yeah absolutely it's like it's weird out of you know it's just like it's that re- refusal to ever accept defeat like you know that this has got the better of me and that's all that that's the only reason why I kept playing because I have this I was saying earlier because we've been doing interviews for the last two days now and it's been great you know obviously talking about the book and whatever but I've got this memory of when I was 12 to 16 where I just remember feeling invincible where like uh, I was I was uh, all I used to do was get down get the cue out my case and just pop balls and it was good pretty much all the time you know and I never used to worry from one day to the next was it going to be there weren't it going to be there it was just like the most easy natural thing that you know that it felt and then all of a sudden I kind of I lost my way and but while I was losing my way, I always had that memory of how easy the game could be. So for me to give in, it was never an option because I was always on that search. And I was like, whenever I used to play and I'd win a match or win a tournament, like I'd play terrible. People used to go, he, sh- he shouldn't be saying that. It's a liberty, you know, you can't. And I, but I really meant it, you know. I felt like I'd played so bad and won tournaments, but I never felt good about it. And all I could think about was I just want to show the world what it's like when I'm playing well for long periods of time mm. and just to show everyone like how easy I can make this game look and that's what frustrated me more than anything and like you say the guy that lost his finger he, he just refused to give in and that was a little bit like me I refused to give in because I had this dream or this passion to hopefully overcome what what you know the difficulties that I that I was finding with the game because I, I truly believed that I truly believed it was possible that I should never lose because I believed that when I was at my best, I can pot any ball on the table. And I had this belief that if I could do that every day, it's impossible for me to lose. So I had this unrealistic expectation probably, but it was still like a belief in my head. Mm. And that's what kept me going. So out of, I call it stupidity, I think. Out of stupidity, I was like, I kept going. It's a bit like the guy with a darn wall. Out, like everyone was saying, you can't climb your finger. You, like, you know, everyone was saying, don't do it. But out of stupidity, and out of his love for it, and out of whatever it gave him, it was like, no, I'm going to find a way. And that's what you do, I think. You know, some, well, some people do, not everybody. And and it's making that sport or endeavour that you love look easy as well. Like Tommy mm. Caldwell, that guy in the Don Wall, mm. made climbing look easy. Mm. And it's it's clearly not an easy pursuit. <laughs> uh, similar similar to snooker, like the, the 
the cue ball control and, and as you say in the book you know allowing the cue ball only to move a few inches from mm. shot to shot mm. that looks easy but it's mm. completely not it, you described it as tiki taka yeah. you know Iniesta and, and yeah. Xavi never passed the ball too far to each other yeah, but yeah. they made it the, uh, a brilliant game look simple yeah absolutely and like, like I say from that period from 12 to 16 I, I felt like I had the game under manners mm. You know, you look at some some of the footage videos of me when I was playing 14 and when I was at 15 and you look at the way I moved the ball around and it really was. And then if you look at some videos from me from when I was 18, obviously got YouTube now, to 24, you'll see how my style just got worse. But then I kind of like when I got to 25, I, I reconstructed my game, my technique. And again, that's why I say the 147 in five minutes and eight seconds, I always say it was probably my worst... 147 by a long way because my cue ball was nowhere where it should have been or where I would have liked to have been because I was getting on the wrong angle of balls and I sometimes had to rely on playing a great shot to keep the break going whereas nowadays I leave myself so many more options so I'll play into an area and I kind of got that one and if that one's not right I got that one and you know I've, I've got a much better cue ball control now because of because of seeing a coach called Frank Adamson who used to f uh, coach Stephen Lee and he kind of, we, we tried to, I knew I had to reconstruct my game and make my technique so much better that I was able to be a bit more efficient and I had more control over the cue ball and where it was going to go. So I always think every sport there's an art, there's an easy way or a hard way of playing the game. Um, I started off playing it the easy way then got into playing it the hard way and now I've tried to get back to playing it the easy way um, and it's a bit like like you say the Barcelona team when they play football you know you know they're, they're always ready for it and you give it to me I've got three or four options and it's like that's how you want to play you know but the Frank Adamson that you mentioned it's crazy like he, he, mm. I think he passed away just before Christmas of yeah, last year he did yeah and I think and a lot of people think about players professional snooker players practicing and going in for say five six hours and, mm. and just potting balls left mm. right and center mm. you talk in the book about going in with frank and yeah. across eight hours maybe potting 36 balls yeah, that was like it. It, not tedious but but slow coached uh, the, the smallest little minutiae of your of your technique were yeah. perfected under frank yeah i mean yeah he dice yeah he pulled it apart and yeah it was it, it, it was it was hard because I just thought it was going to be a quick fix. I, I've always wanted quick fixes. I thought if I if I move my shoulder two inches, move my leg lifts one inch, it's always I thought it was just like something. And you know, um, but with Frank, it was more. No, we're going to sit down. Like, do you think? And I was like, you know, sometimes I finish a shot and it would, like at first I thought oh, I did like maybe thirty seconds or a minute and we get on with the next shot. And then I realised it was like at least twenty minutes of him explaining to me this, this, that, and that, and I would have to listen to him. And and it was yeah, it was just what I needed. And you know, we we kind of he taught me so much. He taught me so much about this game. And Frank, you know, all, all great, all the great snooker coaches I've worked with have never been fantastic players, apart from Ray Reardon. But Ray Reardon was never a technical coach. Yeah. He was more about shot selection and how to trap your opponent and how to de defend well. Not defend, defend well. So that was different. But Frank, technically, you know, was was the best I've ever worked with. And um, yeah, I, I loved my time with, with Frank. You know, like all he had was a cheese. He was like cheese sandwich, cup of tea, no spices on his food. He was just the most loveliest human being. And um, yeah, we had, to, you know. I think he, yeah, we had some good times together. Kept it simple. Yeah, he loved the game. He loved the game, you know. 
the, the what I hadn't realised a lot of people don't realise and I, I've spoken to Ken Doherty and Stephen Hendry about this mm. before as well is the mm. importance of the queue mm. and like we have I think we have a couple of hurls like Irish hurls in, yeah. in the background here and they're made of ash and we use yeah. an ash queue um, like there's a very funny segment of the book where you're talking about some players give their queues names there's a Leila on the circuit apparently and yeah. you're like there's no because no two bits of wood are ever the same that's what I've learned I'll be out with my missus looking at some wooden flooring or a small coffee table yeah. and I'll pick it up and stroke it and have a little sniff yeah. and I'll say yep this is the one to go for a lovely bit of wood we can polish up and steam and oil <laughs> there's no innuendo here by the way intended <laughs> but like she said, you says she'll look at me like I'm mad <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan, expert in dead trees. That's yeah. brilliant. Like, it, but it is so important to pick the right ah, cue and piece of wood for ah, the queue. Yeah, I love. Yeah, like you know, I go into like I think I was at the RAC club yesterday, and they've got these cues there, and I pick this cue up and I just shake it like that, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know exactly what it's going to do. I know it's going to sound when I hit it. You know, I'm a carpenter at the end of the day. You know what I mean? That ma- ma- manages to pot a few balls. You know, so when I look at a bit of cue, I'm looking at it like you know, like what what is this like? You know, I know it. I know. Before I even look at some bits, I think, oh, that's going to be a nightmare to play with. You know what I mean? So, yeah, no, I I've, I love wood. Um, I love, yeah, I mean, you'll see snooker players. like I've seen players have like 100 cues and they're sitting there and they're playing. And they're, uh, you know, you can drive yourself insane with cues. I mean, Stephen Hendry's cue that he won the Seven World Turks was, was the worst piece of wood you've ever seen in really? your life. Yeah, 120 quid from the sports shop. It was a Rex Williams special. It was like a banana. Nothing special about it. And it had no cue power in it at all, but he knew how to play with it. And I was like, you know what? So when people talk to me about cues and wood and that, I go, listen, you just got to find the right bit of wood for you. You know, cues nowadays that are made, they are different to old cues. The, the ones that John Paris makes. You know, when I first started using a John Paris, I was very hesitant to. My, my cue was a Burwatt champion. It was like, like 120 years old. Mm. By the time I finished with it, I'd ruined it. I'd had it chopped about this, that, because it got a lot of wear in it. And I had to stop using it. And I was petrified to ever give this cue up. And I had this John Paris cue sitting in the corner because I knew at some point I had to um, make that transition. And then one day I went, oh. I got this cue out. It was in a it was in a plastic sheet. I got it out and I chalked it and I went and I put one black and went into the pack and the ball just went and I was like I could never have done that with my old cue and I went wow I should have done I was like I was ten years I should have done it ten years ago. So these new cues, it's like these new golf clubs. They can like technology. Yeah, it's like I walking mean, into the Harry Potter the wine shop and Harry. Yeah, Potter. yeah, it is. Yeah, and like now I'm like. John, you know, I'm a bit spoiled because um, you think I used to think like John Parrish could just like produce it like it was, you know. And so then next time I wanted a cue, I said, John, I need a cue. And he sent one over and I went, oh, it was great straight away. And then one day I smashed his cue into a thousand pieces, knowing that John Parrish could just send me one tomorrow. And he couldn't. He sent me, I must have went through 60 cues and couldn't find one. I went, John, what is going on here? I says, like, the last two you sent me, it'd be the first time I've been. He went, it's not that easy. He said, I'm, he said, I'm walking the forest, like, three or four times a week, looking at wood, kind of, is that, and I was like, <laughs> so anyway, I, I've now worked out how to get a cue that is stiff to make it a bit more flex, flexy, so I could probably get an average cue and turn it into a good cue now. Mm. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, that's what snooker players do. They 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 get attached to their their cues. It's like they, it is our, our wand, you know. It is a living thing. Would we forget that? That's why mm, it's so important. Absolutely, yeah. brilliant. We're just going to finish up with a couple. Um, like this is going to solve an argument that we've been having in the office over the last mm. number of weeks. We're talking about natural talent. Yeah, sports people. Yeah, you, you, there's an element in the book as well where you talk about not to give too much away in the book. Obviously, mm. go and buy it. But um, we were given a Rubik's cube, I think, and you're you're yeah. your dad and uncles trying to solve a Rubik's cube. Yeah, having a little bit of difficulty. Yeah, and you're like. Ugh. 
what's this all about? You know, just solve it and that's yeah. it. This is simple. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I described you in the office one day as one of the most naturally gifted sports people I had seen mm. uh, in any sport. But then I, 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 on reflection and, and looking at the book, I was like, I don't mean that as an insult to the to the actual hard work yeah. and graft that you yeah. that you have yeah. had to put in. Mm. Do you know, because it, it can nearly sound disrespectful. Oh, it yeah. means he doesn't have to pick up a cue yeah. in practice. Yeah. But what, what what's your take on that natural talent and and versus hard work? Um, I think any professional that you see on playing any sport has worked hard. So I refuse to believe that, you know, that people go, oh, you know, he's just talented. And good. Like, like, I'm not, no, I'm not having it. You know, every every player that's made the grade, at some point the coach has looked at them and gone, they've got the dedication, they've got the desire, they've got the fire in their belly and they're prepared to work hard. You know, I, I can make something of this young girl or boy. And then I think you get to the point where you know, everyone sort of comes through and then the guys that have a lot of ability but have the work effort become, you know, brilliant at what they do. So you might look at Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Tiger Woods, Messi, Pele, you know, all these, uh, Muhammad Ali, they are gifted. Mm. They are super, super gifted. But they've always, they, they 100%, they've put the hard work in. In some point, in some times, the, them type of players put more work in the ones that haven't got the talent. I don't know why, you know, and, and 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 I don't mind being called, you know, the most naturally gifted player as long as they say, but he's also the most hardest working player because a lot of the guys on the circuit that I've trained with that have, if you go and ask Anthony Hamilton, you know, how hard does Ronnie work? What is he like? He'll tell you that I work as hard as anybody there is ever to play the game, you know, six, seven hours every day, twice a day I'll be in the club, blisters on my fingers, you know, just probably playing too much mm. sometimes, overplaying. And I don't, so I don't mind being called the most talented, as long as they back it up with, he's also the hardest working, because I just think that word talent can get thrown about, and then it becomes like, well, he's wasted, you know, he's, he's like, it's all right for him, you know, he could have done better, he mm. could have done this, you know, he's talented. Right, really, you know, so that 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 sometimes, you know, your hard work gets lost. Yeah, we might have talent, but the hard work was still put in. That's my yeah. It's it's brilliant logic to have. Mm. Uh, finally, Ronnie, there's there's um there's great. I remember seeing an interview years ago with uh, with Barack Obama, and he was asked. People had you know, members of of the public had opportunities to ask him random questions. One person just asked, mm. "How are you?" And like I was thinking, I was trying to, you know, it was such a simple question, but it was brilliant. Yeah, oh yeah. It was like you could have asked him anything in the world. That's brilliant. And look, but I was thinking about you as well, and, and just the ups and downs that you've had, and yeah. just even when you talk in the book about taking the dog, the our show out for a walk yeah. in, in Heidel Forest or, or Chigwell yeah. or whatever it might be, um, or having your little uh, jam and clotted cream scone yeah. or scone as yeah. I call it, um, a cup of tea, mm. the little things now that make you happy. Even having your mate Robbie, who I've met yeah. before at, at the tournaments yeah. with you, yeah. you know, someone that you trust and and, yeah. and, and who's loyal. Um, how are you now? Like, how 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 do you feel after the 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 years that you've had, the ups and downs? Like, are you are you, are you in a good place? How, I'll tell you what, I struggle with. Um, I'm in a fantastic place, but what I struggle with is how I exit this game mm. because it's all I've ever done. It's my like go-to when I'm even when I'm not feeling great. It's like my church. It's like my place to go to switch off. It's like my meditation. It's like it feeds me in so many good ways. Not when I'm playing competition, but just on a day-to-day basis. You know, a lot of the time you see, oh, you, you know, playing in the British Open or the China Open. But most of the time, I'm just down Wolverhampton Snooker Club on my own, 
potting balls with my friend, enjoying it, loving it. And I'm scared that at some point I might not be doing that. And that's what worries me. It's yeah. like, how do I navigate my way out of the sport and into, you know, retirement at some point? So I'm probably keep playing because I just, I don't know how to do it. You know, it's like, what? how do I fill that void? I've accepted I'll probably never, ever find anything to ever, you know, I thought about creating a new game. Right. I thought about, okay, I can't compete on a 12 by 6 table. My eyes are not going to be as good. My bottle's not as good. I'm like, these guys are younger. You know, I might create a new game. I looked at maybe creating a game that just has four pockets on. I looked at a table. We started playing. And I went, you know what? I like this. It's a cross between pool and snooker. Um, I want to retain a lot of the skill that's involved in snooker, but only using four pockets. I was playing this table and thinking, the middle pocket's getting in the way. The middle pocket's get in the way of being able to do some unbelievable shots. So it'll be like serious snooker, but you'll be it'll be like Luca. Everyone would have to play snooker like Luca Purcell or Judd Trump attacking snooker. Yeah, because you haven't got the middle pocket, so you're allowed to use the cushions, and you'd have to arc the white, and you'd have to move the white around. A lot of snooker players you see, it's like stun, top, pop, keeping tight control of the white because you've got the middle pockets are in the way. So you have to kind of be really accurate with your positional play Luca Brussel and, and Judd Trump have got this ability to be able to move the white around they haven't got the best cue ball control yeah. but it's good enough but they can get themselves out of trouble because they can whip the ball around they can banana it they can arc it but with no middle pockets you'd have to play like that because you've got all this you've got to get from there to there because the other guy can yeah. and if he can and you can't you're at a disadvantage so I thought about creating a 6 by 6 table with no middle pockets I can keep playing. Whether it catches on, who knows? But that's how I probably think I could play until I'm 60, 65 and still compete. And you could win the first World Championship on this 6 for 6 table? Yeah, maybe? I'd win it. and Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan, inventor. Just the inventor, to, to yeah. Listening. Well, exactly. listen, if, if you have two minutes at the end of this, we have a, we have a three-foot table. If you're, if you're up for a two-minute frame. Absolutely. Um, just so I can say I lost or beat Ronnie O'Sullivan on a, on a three-foot. I'm not going to win, to be honest. Ronnie, it, it's always great to catch up with you. Maybe the next one we'll do it over a, over a jog, maybe, and yeah. somehow film it, Yeah. whether that's in England or, or over here. Absolutely. Um, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Cheers, Shane. Stuff. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Uh, buy the book. Wherever you get your books, it's out now in all good bookstores. Ronnie O'Sullivan, Unbreakable, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because the man's beside me. It was a brilliant read. I couldn't put it down, and uh, I think it's it's I think it's your best book. Like I've read them all. Thank Running you. was brilliant as well. Thank you. Uh, thank and, you. and the fiction books are obviously different and, and yeah. brilliant as well. But but this one's top thank notch. You, so thank you. Fair play, Ronnie. Great stuff. Thanks for coming in. Cheers, mate. Off the ball daily.